0: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Absent is Emily Jane Fox, your usual co-host. Last week and the weeks before, you have heard us tell of an imminent baby. Well, I'm not going to tell you all the details because Emily Jane Fox is going to come back next week and talk about it, but a baby has cometh. And it is very exciting, and we are wishing her a Congratulations to Emily Jane Fox on becoming a mother, and uh, we can't wait to fill you in all the details next week. This week, we have one of our star reporters from The Hive, Chris Smith. Chris, hello.
1: Joe Hagen, that's a very nice introduction. And how do I follow giving
0: birth? I mean, that's like... Are you pregnant? Are you having a baby? Because <laughs> I don't know if I we can even t- do this interview unless you can, like, promise me a baby up front. I
1: can't top that in any respect. I gave birth to a book this week. Does that count? Dad, you tell us about it. What book is it? It is the memoir of CeCe Sabathia, a former Yankees pitching great. It's called Till the End. And while it has a lot of baseball in it, it also has a lot about racism and
0: alcoholism and Mm. and other fun subjects. Well, people like reading about that kind of drama. And and I want to just point out that you, you know, you joked about birthing a book, but writing a book, some similarities. There's a lot of, you know, pain. You have to deep breathing, you know, uh, screaming. And then finally, there was a lot of screaming. screaming. There was a lot of screaming, Yes. So, uh, well, that's very exciting, and um, congratulations. Thank you. I assume you've bought 10 or 12 copies in advance. You know, I pre-ordered on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So, before we get into our conversation today, which is going to be about the New York City mayoral race and the eventual election of Eric Adams as the new mayor, things which I don't know enough about, and I'm hoping to learn more, I just want to introduce people who are listening to this podcast who might be regular listeners or just joining us for the first time to talk about Chris Smith for a minute. Now, I have known Chris Smith for several years and when I first met you Chris, uh, you were, you know, a New York City political reporter for New York Magazine in a previous life. And even at that time, you were considered a veteran. So you, now you're even like more veteran
1: than you've ever been. You're trying to say I'm old. C- you're trying to say I'm old, Joe, and that's
0: okay. Did you see how I avoided it? I tap danced <laughs> around it.
1: The other thing is I started as a political reporter when I was 12. So, you know, I got a head Well, start. there you
0: go. See, and let's, that was in, you know, the early 20th century. So let's talk <laughs> about, about like, no, for real though, when did you start getting involved in reporting on New York city politics? When was that?
1: Yeah, I got hired at New York magazine by the guy who at the time was this city, state, national political writer, Joe Klein. And, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah, uh, Joe's a hell of a writer and reporter, and I owe him eternally. He taught me a great deal about how to do this work. I'm, you know, nowhere near his level, but, uh, yeah, started out doing all the kind of grunt labor of transcribing his interview tapes and making his plane reservations. And Joe was really diligent about finding ways for me to write, to get even small pieces into the magazine. Uh, And then I spent a bunch of years doing feature stories, some of them politics, some of them sports, some cops and robbers. And when a new editor-in-chief took over, Adam Moss, uh, he was looking for a new city and state political columnist. Uh, It happened to coincide with the Republican National convention in New York City in Madison Square Garden in 2000. I remember it well. right? And I did a bunch of stuff for that that Adam liked and from there I spent the next however many years uh, full-time
0: doing city and state politics. That's amazing. Well, let me just ask you this question that I think is sort of the the baseline for any conversation about this mayoral race. Okay. Is when it, when it began? Bill de Blasio is the mayor currently and has been. I've only heard his name spoken in uh, very negative terms for the last year or more. What is the kind of conventional wisdom about his tenure as mayor? Uh, That's that's, Of course,
1: uh, as with all things, depends on who you talk to. The media consensus is that de Blasio has been a failure, that... He had a great idea in 2013. He was a perfect fit in running on income inequality and the reduction or elimination of stop and frisk uh, in the NYPD. He His election was very much a reaction to 12 years of Michael Bloomberg, autocrat, right. billionaire mayor. So... Yeah. De Blasio, you know, hit the right notes and was elected for a variety of reasons, and uh, got a big win in his first year by establishing universal pre-K, and then kind of lost interest uh, mm-hmm. from early on. Declared that he wanted to be a national figure, a leader of the Democratic Party, and uh, took his eye off the ball in a lot of respects of day-to-day management of New York City government. He's been very lucky that most of those eight years have been fairly uh, good economic years, you know, and, this, and the city has done well. But there have in the past two, three years, well, not just the past two, three years, through the entirety of the two terms, been uh, record numbers, increases in numbers of homeless New Yorkers. Uh, housing prices, you know, very much related to that, have done nothing but gone up. And the affordable housing that de Blasio has promised to deliver didn't come through in anywhere near the numbers he said. He's, you know, been in a giant feud with. Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, largely largely at Cuomo's instigation, but De Blasio has played right into it. So for those reasons and others, and the fact that De Blasio can be a real goof and just say and do stupid things and be condescending, he's uh, not a. The media has not been a fan. If you look at polls, right. p- particularly of black New Yorkers, middle class and lower New Yorkers, he's still quite popular, you know. Uh, For most of his term, uh, crime has been at record low levels um, and the economy has done pretty well. um, And he, he did continue the reduction in stop and frisk that Bloomberg had started at the very end. So, uh, because he championed populist causes, uh, even if he didn't deliver entirely, um, he's remained very popular in in segments of the city that don't often get enough media attention.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, So two things. One is that he came in post-Bloomberg, who was the sort of – like as you described, an autocrat. He was a technocrat. He actually ended up having a third term by changing the law so that he could continue, right? Um, Which which is a very Bloombergian thing to do. Um, And then – and Bill de Blasio came in as the progressive. And like you said, he got that win. And my takeaway from what you're saying is that basically he – didn't do well with the press and it may be rightfully i don't know i mean we can all judge whether the press gets it right on that count i remember that during the pandemic he went out and worked out at his gym and that caused those are the kinds of things that got him in trouble right
1: but i mean it wasn't just a media thing he he did drop the ball uh, to mix many metaphors on the blocking and tackling of many aspects of city government uh, the schools. This is system. where you say he lost interest. Yeah, correct. The, uh, he's gone through a succession of uh, schools chancellors, and the public schools have continued to go uh, sideways, if not downhill. So that's been a major failing. That's entirely
0: substantive. Right. Well, just for people who don't live in New York City, um, I just want to give you a taste of what it's like to be mayor. Okay, every Friday. There was a program in New York City, the the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC, which is the you know the uh, NPR station, and he would have De Blasio on to field calls from New Yorkers. One of the most entertaining shows on the radio, by the way, because it was so hilariously picayune and ridiculous. But it gave you an idea of like how minute the issues that New Yorkers have for their mayor. You know, there was like a woman calls saying that there's some construction outside of her window, and it caused her pictures to come off the wall, okay? And so can you do something about this, Mr. Mayor, right? (laughs) Because what you're dealing is, when you're the mayor of New York City, it is an incredibly detail-oriented job.
1: Yeah, and that, you know, Brian Lehrer is a great example of it, but going to community board meetings, town halls over the years, you know, that extends back through Bloomberg and Giuliani and Dinkins and Koch. It's always been... Both astounding and wonderful to me that people show up at these meetings and expect the mayor, the highest elected official in the city of New York, to do something about the
0: graffiti on the building, you know, down the block. Yeah, tomorrow. right. Well, and you could that when you said that he lost interest, I was sort of thinking about some of these things like, oh, my God, like, you know, first of all, it's like. um trying to get really anything done in New York City is just a series of heartaches dealing with different constituents right um who all want different things and you have to be pretty savvy to broker deals you know in the Lyndon Johnson sort of tradition of the Senate you know brokering deals between opposing factions and you know forcing people to the table and you know it was just something that Bloomberg managed to do um, to a certain extent but as you mentioned de Blasio reduced the the stop and frisk in New York City, which was the major issue that kneecapped Bloomberg's presidential aspirations, in addition to the fact that he has no charisma and is a bad candidate. Um, but this election that we just had, I mean, we're talking about the Democratic primary, part of it was about crime, or at least, at least the winner, Eric Adams, made it partly about dealing with crime, right? So what is the status of crime in New York City as it has been understood in the last you know, couple of years? Well,
1: uh, the last year and a half has been a remarkable thing in the world in a variety of ways. Uh, you yes. know, lo- locally in uh, New York City, the relationship between crime and the police department—you know, uh, to use a, a favorite word of a um, old friend of yours and mine—the valences have turned around, have shifted. Fantastically that, you know, a year ago, year and a half ago at this time, the city was dominated by protests over the killing of George Floyd and other black Americans. And the confrontations between the NYPD and protesters, civilians, were severely mismanaged uh, by City Hall. And de Blasio seemed to have surrendered any authority or credibility to his police commissioner. And mm-hmm. at that point, it looked like reforming, restraining, retraining the NYPD was going to be the paramount issue in this election. Well, uh, as of about January, uh, shootings and homicides were escalating drastically and have continued through the spring and summer. Now, (laughs) that's not good. I mean, increases in shootings and homicides are are not good in in any way. Relative to where the city was in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we're still dramatically lower. You know, the statistics, the numbers are are still way, way better. But this shift made uh, public safety, And uh, controlling crime, reducing it again, Uh, the number one issue in the mayor's race, uh, instead of reforming the police department, you know, the issue, uh, the conversation became about how can
0: we get more cops on the street and guns off the street. Right. Which is a weird kind of sidestep because. And I don't know if this is true, but the implication is, is that the police sort of like demoralized by how they were cast in the protests management uh, may have like given up on some of their duties to fight crime. I mean, is that I've heard that, but I don't want to go out on a limb and say that that's what happened. But is that in the mix there? It certainly is. And, you know, to jump ahead or around somewhat, I
1: interviewed Eric Adams, uh, I don't know, six weeks or so ago, and he's a former cop, which in this campaign ended up being one of his great strengths. But I asked him about that. I said, you know, is part of the dynamic in the the resurgence of crime in the city or the inability to, to control shootings and homicides is part of the dynamic that cops, after having been beaten up in the media the past year, two years, and literally beaten up by demonstrators in the streets, are cops saying, you know, you don't like us around? You don't like having us in your neighborhood? Okay, see how you fucking like it if we stop showing up. And Adams, interestingly, running as the law and order candidate, running as the former cop, said, yeah, that's part of the picture. Um, Yeah. And whether he's able to do anything about it, whether he has the skills to do anything about it is, is to me, dubious. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's an element. That was certainly not everything that was driving uh, this surge in crime. You know, the pandemic, the unemployment, the insane uh, availability of
0: guns in this country. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those are... Uh, larger factors. Sure. Well, it's interesting. So, Eric Adams. Let's talk about him a minute. I mean, from what you're saying, it's it's as if he kind of threaded the needle between, you know, Black Lives Matter and the and the the blue, right? Uh, the police department. And um, both having been a former cop, being an African American, a lot of people consider him not progressive enough. But you know, you said he's about your age. Yes. Have you been covering him? your coverage of him predate all this? Uh, what have you known about sure. him over the years? Or did he, did he emerge? When did he first sort of come onto your radar? And what do you, what can you tell us about him?
1: Sure. It's, it's pretty much impossible to have been covering New York City politics any time in the past 20 years and not have written about uh, Eric Adams uh, because mm-hmm. One of his, you know, gifts uh, is attracting media attention is even though mm-hmm. to this point he's been in relatively low profile, low uh, power jobs. He has a gift for attracting attention and um, he's got a real uh, gift for stunts and for inflammatory quotes. So, sure. Yeah, I've known about him and covered him on and off for years. You know, just capsule bio, uh, and this was, it's a compelling part of his biography, even if he wasn't running for office, but was certainly a, a major attraction to a lot of people for just the reasons you're, you're talking about. Grew up, you know, poor in Queens and Brooklyn um, at the age of 14 or 15. Uh, he and a brother were arrested for breaking and entering and he says we're taken to a precinct and beaten um you know like far far too many young black male in particular americans Mm -hmm. but that instead of turning him into a hater of the cops he decided he wanted to change the institution from the inside so eventually he enlists or you know gets a job as a as a cop and he was not known as a particularly active street cop. He was known as an activist cop. And he was prescient in a lot of ways, speaking out in the, in the 90s and early 2000s about racism in the department, about misuse of stop and frisk. So he's got a lot of credibility on those issues, which he used to win a state Senate seat, was in Albany for eight years. Then from there, spent eight years as the Brooklyn Borough president. And uh, he, you know, if I had to pick two words out of his political life to describe him, I I would say charismatic and transactional. Um, Mm -hmm. That he's a real presence. He's he's got a real personal magnetism to him. But he's a real in for all his, you know, outsider youth and and experience in the police department. mean, this is a guy who's tight with the real estate industry, with uh, major donors, with uh, some of the fixers in what remains of the Brooklyn Democratic machine. Uh, There have been a number of investigations of his fundraising practices, and he's played it very close to the line for years. So that's, you know, one of the chief worries about him as mayor is that he's going to be a sort of old
0: machine style mayor. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of ironic because, you know, on the one hand, he's selling himself as a reformer. And, you know, we're talking about earlier about de Blasio losing interest in being mayor because of the perhaps because of how how much detail it requires and how much uh, attention to brokering and and bringing people to the table and strong-arming people and all the things that you know effective politicians can do. But, um, so is there some tension here between, A, that he's a good, charismatic politician who can draw attention to himself, doesn't necessarily make you a good manager of anything, and that when you are going to be in a situation where you could manage something, that you're going to defer to your uh, you know guys in the smoke-filled room uh, when it comes time to, to get things done and, and hand out the money?
1: Yeah, I mean, that takes a lot of forms. He, as Brooklyn Borough President, was notorious for running a a chaotic office. He's always been an eccentric character. I mean, he spent a lot of time literally sleeping in his office, not because he was, well, he claims he was working hard, but uh, the Brooklyn Borough (laughs) President doesn't have a whole lot to do. Uh, he, yeah. you know, uh, did a lot of wild things like he held a press conference with buckets of drowned rats because rats are <laughs> in, inescapably a major problem in New York City public housing. And he was promoting this chemical drowning method to eliminate rats. You know, uh, he succeeded in the sense that it got a lot of attention. Was there much follow-through? You know, did this eradicate or reduce the rat population? Uh, no. Um, no. So you know, yes, the pessimistic view of Adams is that he will be uh, inflammatory and talk a lot and and surrender the actual workings of the government to the sort of inside dealers in in real estate and the permanent government. The optimistic view, which, is certainly possible is that these kind of contradictory currents where the strength the base for him in the election were black and latino middle to lower class income new yorkers I mean he's been where where de blasio talked a great populist game Adams really has been elected by by populist votes that he can combine that base and the insider connections with the real estate industry, with hedge fund donors, to actually get things done on their behalf. You know, that would be a major, major accomplishment. Um, You know, there's nothing in his background that uh, makes me confident he could thread that needle, but it's possible.
0: Um, well, he's not mayor yet, right? He's got a primary, but it's probably kind of perfunctory because he's against a Republican. He's not too well known. Can you tell me something about the fellow he's running against? Oh, my God. Uh, he, <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, for for uh, the rest of the world out there, New York City, you know, the, the uh, voter registration is, I think— 80% Democratic, so winning the Democratic nomination in the primary uh, this week, last week, is in many ways uh, a lock to win the general election in November, but there is a general election, and the Republican candidate is Curtis Slewa, who came to public prominence as uh, a leader, the leader of the Guardian Angel's. Uh, red Beret, vigilante, uh, su- anti-subway crime group in the 70s. And mm-hmm. Curtis has managed, you know, through all kinds of means, hosting radio shows, among other things, to stay in the public eye ever since. Um, so he's the Republican nominee, and I can't take credit for this framing but the general election is going to be real cop versus fake cop. Um,
0: <laughs> and yes.
1: it'll be colorful, you know, unless Adams manages to ignore Sliwa completely, but yeah. Adams Adams likes mixing it up verbally. And so I think there's going to be a lot of verbal mud thrown
0: between now and November. Right. Right. And if anybody uh, Googles, Curtis Sliwa, you know, and you even have a passing knowledge of the history of New York City, you'll know who this guy is. My memory that flashed into my mind right away was I think he might have been on 60 Minutes in the 80s or something, you know. Um, But he, you know, he's always been, again, another, uh, as all these politicians who are successful are, you know, they figure out how to get attention. And a lot of them come out of having media platforms as we know all too well. Uh, Does he have any connection with the the Trump GOP or is he of a different breed and type? Curtis is
1: his own breed and type and has been, uh, to his credit, you know, not a MAGA guy. He's been anti-Trump, you know, not stridently so, but no, he hasn't hasn't
0: bought the Trump bullshit and has been... uh, Right clear about that all along so let's broaden out the the picture here for a minute a lot of people are starting to travel this summer for the first time in a long time as as you are and I have recently and a lot of people may decide to go to New York City um, I was looking on the New York Times website and reading some of the comments uh, that attended an article about Curtis Adams and of course you get all kinds of nuttery in the comment section but But you do hear occasionally people are afraid to come to New York because they actually believe that these crime numbers, which you pointed out rightfully, are historically low, but high comparative to two years ago. Um, They're thinking about coming to New York. And New York has really changed. New York has changed dramatically uh, in the last year, as all of America has. But, you know, when I uh, came recently to the city. I, I don't live in the city proper, but I went down to the city. It was a little quieter than usual. I was really surprised to no longer see yellow cabs. I was surprised, and I shouldn't have been because I'd read about it, but that, you know, the restaurants are half on the street, right? Because there was so much outdoor dining infrastructure built on the streets. It looked like you were going to like Montreal or Barcelona or something because you had the sort of open air quality to it. And there was just a... It seemed the city had been fundamentally changed in some ways. Now, that may have just been temporary, but it also—parts of it are going to obviously wash over into the future and are going to change the character of the city. What have you noticed, Chris, about the way the city has changed? You know, just in the course of this last year, but, in you know, the the New York that these candidates and Eric Adams in particular is well, him only—you know, the city that he's about to take over— is going to be very different from the one that de Blasio took over, you know, several years ago. So have you noticed, and what what are people saying about the New York of today? What can people expect when they're looking out from the rest of the country and they want to go visit New York? Has it is it a different New York? Yes.
1: Uh, yellow cabs still exist, but they are a dying breed thanks to Uber, Lyft, the Internet, cell phones. Mm-hmm uh the outdoor dining is here to stay and in my book is a good thing you know it adds a communal kind of festivity to the neighborhoods and and the city um Mm -hmm. bad trend for street life and employment you know that predates the pandemic but was certainly accelerated by the pandemic is the death of retail you know Particularly mid-range small retail stores. There's, uh, you've probably seen it yourself. Tons and tons of storefront vacancies, and that's a bad thing. That's you know, literally dangerous, and it's put a lot of people out of work. Um, What I have no insight. You know, no crystal ball, no real way to to say how this is going to play out. Is The city has gotten younger, you know, even even as things have gotten way more expensive. There's a a generation of people who've arrived and and are still arriving, you know, but have have moved to the city in the past five, 10 years. And their politics to generalize are, are further to the left than the people they are replacing. You saw some of that in this. Mayoral primary with the support for Maya Wiley, who finished a pretty strong third. Um, so, how that younger generation, which you know they're scuffling in a lot of ways to pay the rent and find work, how how their energy plays out is, I think, an enormous question mark. A potentially great thing for the city if there's a rebirth of kind of you know indie culture in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I think is, is potentially really positive is that, and this has shown up in Adams probably becoming the next mayor in New York, uh, but in other cities around the country, small and large, I think it's uh, like 10 or 12 of the largest cities in New York now have mayors of color. So you're seeing voters of color, you know, really uh, engaged in and taking charge, if not, you know, gaining more power in major cities. And I think that's to the good. And what Adams faces, you know, the biggest risk I think Adams faces, and this is a risk for the city as a whole, is he's sold himself as the guy who can deliver police reform and a safer city At the same time right if he doesn't Mm -hmm. deliver on the safer city part he's going to have a very short honeymoon you know having sold himself as this guy uh if he's not reducing the crime numbers in the first six eight nine months you know the post will turn on him the post was backing him uh, aggressively in this campaign uh, but the Post and the Daily News will be all over him. Um, and, it, you know, it'll be a, a a life and death issue for folks who are, you know, uh, suffering from too much crime already. But politically, I think he's got a very small window to deliver on,
0: on the thing that got him elected. Yeah. And what is the temperature in the police department about him? As it stands, are I mean, you got the union, but you also have the the police department itself. It's like, what what are the what's the posture about him right now? Are they? It's they mixed. Like him? Yeah, I mean,
1: it's mixed because he was such a loud internal critic during his time in uniform, during his time in the department. You know, they considered him a, a self promoter and a loud mouth. Uh, which he was, you know, but generally on the right issues. It still remains, you know, though it's a more diverse department than ever, it still remains, particularly in the leadership, a very white department. But, you know, when, when I talk to veteran cops at, at all levels, they think Adams is good for them um, because he's not coming in beating up on the department. Um, he's not anti-cop. You know, though he claims reform is needed, and this is something I tried to pin him down on, you know, it, it, when he says reform, what does that actually look like? Because he's talking about instituting things that went really badly in the past, like these plainclothes anti-crime units that ended up locking up a lot of innocent black and brown people.
0: Adams's mm-hmm.
1: reform largely boils down to doing things better. Right. You know, not arresting people out of bias and prejudice, you know, putting smarter cops uh, in leadership positions. And sure, everybody's in favor of that. But it's hard to do. And the NYPD is a very tough ship to move quickly. Um, So in general, police leadership is is relieved and happy that Adams is the guy. A, because he's one of them, B, because he hasn't beaten up on the department during the campaign. And they think, you know, uh, whatever changes he may make are
0: around the edges. They're happy to, you know, have him on their side. Yeah. Well, on some level, and I don't know what the you know, what was behind everybody voting for him. It was very different kinds of beliefs and ideas and constituencies there. But there's something refreshing in the way that he kind of breaks with the binary on the national level, which is like white cops and black protesters, right? I mean, the, the world we're living in is polarized to the point where the conversation lacks all nuance and, you know, has no center whatsoever. And in a way, this is a little more grounded in a conversation that can really be had between You know, a former cop who's African-American who can talk to the police and talk to African-Americans. I mean, that is that's the needle I was talking about the threading of. It's like uh, that's kind of refreshing that we don't have to be stuck in the, you know, the people with the Blue Lives Matter versus the Black Lives Matter. Right. Exactly. Um, And uh, there's something if nothing else, just in the message of it. You know, there's a new narrative in town. Right. Yes. And that's um, that's something we need. Desperately. (laughs) Right.
1: And he was very disciplined about delivering that message during the campaign. And, to you know, what you're talking about there on the national level, it was interesting to me, election night or primary night, you know, I was at the Adams party uh, talking to one of the senior guys in his campaign. And before even any of the votes had been counted, this guy is talking about Adams as the new face of the National Democratic Party, that, you know, exactly what you're talking about, which is uh, a little premature, obviously, but, you know, that's what he wants to play into what you're talking about, that it isn't black versus blue, that we can, you know, find, uh, uh, to use the cliche, common ground there in our leadership. you know, uh, he may be you know, getting a little ahead of himself in that respect, but if he can deliver, sure. yeah, that's that's a great
0: yeah. thing locally and nationally, right? And uh, you know, yet another sign or a uh, a hopeful story that kind of rhymes with this. Our our uh, colleague Gabe Sherman has a has a piece up uh, today. In fact, in if you're listening to this on Friday or the weekend, you can read it. But it's about the collision course between Donald Trump and and Ron DeSantis in Florida. And it's yet another the reason I bring that up is it's another story that kind of breaks up the you know extreme polarized kind of narrative we've been in, stuck in for a long time. And, you know, by showing that it's not everybody just lining up behind the old leaders, or like in that case, Trump. Uh, there's people who realize they have to manage, right? Like Ron DeSantis has to manage that Surfside tragedy in Florida. He can't just play politics with Trump uh, in order to win some points. He's actually got to not blow this, right? Um, and on some level, the the more stories we hear, like uh, about Eric Adams, and uh, and I'm not trying to glorify Ron DeSantis for by any stretch, but like, um, you know, it takes some appetite for risk to say, I'm not going to do what Donald Trump says. Right. And that's we need more of that. Right. Right. And that,
1: you know, to connect some of the dots we've been talking about, we started out talking about Brian Lair and the community board meetings and people expecting the mayor of New York City to deliver on the educational system, garbage pickup, you know, the, the everyday work of city government. Eric Adams won by one percentage point over to Catherine Garcia, a former commissioner of sanitation who worked for both de Blasio and Bloomberg, who was selling herself almost entirely as a competent manager of government. So that message was clearly what a lot of people wanted in their next mayor. And the other element of it is that Garcia, who is herself a a white woman, won big with white voters, particularly in Manhattan, where Adams, who is black, won with outer borough voters of color. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, is a a split that the city is still going to need to contend with uh, over the next short period of years. You know, I don't think the voting as it as it is ever is entirely reducible to one issue or or race but the split was so stark in who voted for adams and who voted for garcia that you know to me it says um it was less an ideological vote than a uh, economic and cultural vote and that's a split in the city right you know, that runs really, really deep. And you were asking, you know, has New York City changed? Yeah, those polls are are further apart than ever.
0: Well, Chris, this has been extremely edifying. I feel like I just uh, started out, you know, 45 minutes ago, knowing really next to nothing. And now I feel like I have the whole picture in front of me. And I really appreciate that. And I, I want to just end on like a personal note here, which is that when I moved to New York City in 1995, Giuliani was mayor. It was a city that was in the the economy was down. And I came with the usual fantasies that I was going to be a bohemian of some kind, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, which, uh, you know, as soon as you got there, you realized how... Uh, you know, your fantasies fell apart really fast because you had to have a job. And there were not that many jobs at the time. And it was a a tough time. And right at the same time, uh, people with long memories will remember Giuliani sending tanks into the East Village to drive out squatters from buildings. I mean, that's the kind of city we were living in at the time. And, uh, you know, simultaneously on his moral crusade to drive, you know, porn theaters out of Times Square so that he can invite in Disney and so forth. Um, And some of that was okay, you know, in the long run. And some of it was unfortunate. You know, everybody has a, an old idea of New York. And then there are people who are young who come in and they have new ideas. And the turnover and the reforms and the changes in New York are constant. And we're at another pivot point. And as you mentioned about the restaurants and the you know, the young people coming in with their own ideas you know we were all there once too and it really has a lot to do with everybody wanting to come there to have their dreams fulfilled somehow right and be willing to have the put but get get there and uh so i'm very you know based on just human nature and knowing what it's like to be like 23 years old you go to new york city i, I have a lot of optimism that the city will bounce back and reform and it'll not look like the one that we knew Right? It's going to look like something totally new, and it already does. But um, it's still, as the guy on. uh Remember when CBS 101 was an oldie station? Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy used to come on in the morning, and I used to listen to it in my little office when I first started living in New York, and he'd be like, "The greatest city in the world, New York City," <laughs> and you know, and I, I just, I would get filled with a little, you know, as Chris Matthews used to say, a little thrill up my leg, and uh, I, I loved that, you know, I'm, and I think that that feeling still exists, and it's still there. People are still wanting to make things happen. And you and I get paid to kind of get into the details of the battles between various personalities. But the at the end of the day, it's about uh, what you can make possible there and, and how much possibility is there, right? And I, I, I have no doubt that you believe it's still there.
1: Oh my God, yeah. And as important as that dream of New York City remains, and I, I buy into it completely, one of the fascinating things to me about living in it and writing about it is it coexists with our willingness to elect Giuliani twice, Bloomberg three times, Adams now, who in this field was pretty much in the center. Um, right. So for all New York City's image as, you know, this haven of wild-eyed, pinko, liberal, socialist radicalism, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: uh, you know, what drives city politics is often a very pragmatic notion of making things work. And the fact that that coexists with, you know, people being drawn uh, for more romantic reasons and, and following those dreams. I mean, that's, to me, what
0: uh, is endlessly fascinating. Totally. Well, Chris, thank you so much uh, for coming on Inside the Hive this week. I know you're going to be writing more about this both online and our and Vanity Fair, and everybody listening, you should follow Chris Smith uh, on Twitter to keep up with what he's thinking and saying. Read him on the Hive and in the magazine, and come back next week, and we will have our colleague Emily Jane Fox on to talk about her news. <laughs> talk. We're going to go from the, you know, we'll go from the local, the extreme local, to the national, and maybe even international. So thanks again, Chris, and we will talk to you later. Thanks, Joe. And that's our episode this week. I'd like to thank Chris Smith for coming onto The Hive this week. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll have Emily Jane Fox back in her seat telling us her great news. Thanks to Brett Fuchs, our producer Thanks to the people at Cadence 13, and thanks to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this program. And if you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe at Apple or Radio.com or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.